Welcome to our Blue Cow Red Cow podcast, the only podcast that focuses on cattle reproduction and getting more cows pregnant the first time, guaranteed. Each month we'll provide you with thought-provoking interviews from university researchers, veterinarians and producers all on the topic of cattle reproduction. Hi, I'm your host, Nick Isles, from the Parnell Production Animal Team. And in this part two of our interview with Professor Pursley from Michigan State University, we hope to dive into the history of OVSYNC and how it was received by the dairy industry and how the synchronization protocols have evolved into what they are today. Thanks for joining. From a commercial perspective, what was the market like in reception to OVSYNC? Did you think no one's ever going to use you know, three fertility hormones in the sequence you know, they're going to stick with what they know. It's going to be a couple of prostaglandin shots yeah, and, yeah. and heaps. Well, actually, going back a little, uh, really, to be quite honest, the very first the very first publication was in Hordes Dairyman. Right. And uh, we talked about it. And we talked about, in that article, a little bit about prices of GNRH. Yeah. And we got our prices, I think, from someone local, I think. I think we kind of knew about what what they were charging producers and at the time it was uh, six or six or eight bucks for GNRH yeah <laughs> and not much different for yeah. uh, for uh, prostaglandin 2 alpha whether it was estimated at the time or whether it was utilized you know it was expensive you know I mean to do it and so that was you know we did a little bit of a economic analysis if I recall and uh, you know it works right but I can remember some negative feedback a little bit from from um, some our, some of our farm staff saying, you know, uh, this is the goofiest idea I've ever heard. You know, it's not going to work. You know, et cetera, et cetera. But it it, it was interesting. Uh, there was a dairy farmer in um, Wisconsin, I think, was one of the first to actually use ultrasound in his practice, and um, he was one of the first to pick up Osnick and start using it. It was a pretty large herd at the time. I think I want to say it was a thousand cows at the time, so it was a pretty good size herd. Um, he was, uh, you know, he got started. I mean, someone's got to start, right? And he started yeah. using it, and he called us up, and he said, you know, this thing is just incredible. He says, we just can't believe the results we're getting. We'll never go back to another way. At this point, the adoption had been limited, but this this veterinarian had actually used it on a herd at 100% timed AI. Is that what he was reporting back? He was. Back? He was. Yeah. He, he, he went full war and uh, just was, couldn't be happier. And... That was one of the good calls that we got. I mean, it was interesting, you know. So you know, people don't have to call you and let you know that they're doing this and uh, et cetera. But then, uh, but he he did. He's uh, very complimentary. Did very well with that program. No question. When was it that OvSync really hit the market? You know, it and was adopted broadly, and even to the extent that it was beginning to be used in the resynchronization. When do you think that that sort of occurred? Well, I mean, I, I want to say the article in Hortus Dairy was sometime in 1995. After that, people started picking it up and started using it, I think. Not, I don't know. By that stage, you had finished the, I guess, the OVSYNC uh, trials that, that was all done uh, with Milo at um, the University of Wisconsin. What about then your movement here to uh, to Michigan State? When did that happen? And, and you know, what was the timing then or, or adoption of OVSYNC up here? Yeah. Yeah, so, so you know, when you talk about the adoption, it's kind of hard to know. I mean, it, it, it of course, grew over over the years, right? And But when I came here in 96, and I came here in uh, February 1st of 96, 
uh, they were using it already uh, at our dairy here on campus and other places in the state and and still a little bit reticent about you know are they gonna what kind of results are we gonna get uh, a lot of the feedback we would get at the time is well I, I bred 10 cows only got one pregnant or we, we bred 10 cows and we got nine pregnant it's the most fabulous thing we've ever seen it was one or the other usually if you get a call and usually it was the one cow that got pregnant out of 10 what's going on and and you know it's one of those things where of course uh, compliance is a huge deal and 10 cows doesn't give you a really good feel for what how it's going to happen but you know we go back to that time and there were still a lot of 30 40 50 60 100 cow herds and you just don't have big groups of animals going through getting inseminated you know, week by week yeah. or even every two weeks and so so you're dealing with small numbers and and they're trying to make decisions off the, the early returns of their pregnancy diagnoses right and in that in that way it's, it was kind of difficult for people sometimes to stick with it mm. a little bit i can remember the first study i did here was at nova Dairy, where we've worked now for 23 and a half years thereabouts i remember doing the study and we had i to be quite honest I, right now it escapes me exactly what study it was but yeah. but we had we'd used opsync and we had been out there for six months or something like that up till that point, of course, it was all estrus detection with prostaglandin, et cetera. I can remember leaving and I said, you guys are gonna continue to do this because they got, they had pretty good results. And Ken says, no, I think we're gonna go back to the other thing. And so about a month or so later, he called me back up for a couple of months. He says, you know, we're just not getting enough cows inseminated right now. We're not catching enough cows in, in, in heat. And so uh, we'd kind of like you to come back out and and uh, tell us how to, to do this thing. And, and then since that point, he's been on some type of a OBSYNC or pre-sync OBSYNC or mm -hmm. G6G or double OBSYNC yep. actually one now. Even a really, really good dairy farmer like Ken Novus, you know, he just didn't see the value at the very beginning. And so he decided at that point, okay, I'm not sure what, you know, I don't know whether I want to spend this kind of money on the drugs. Because at the time, it was, the cost of the drugs were still there and that was making a, a lot of, that was affecting decisions, whether we're going to use it or not. And if you only get one or two pregnant, you're probably not going to, out of 10, you're probably going to say, no, nah, I spent too much money. Even with, and, and most people don't understand the, the, the number of animal things when it comes to uh, conception rates and pregnancy rates. Was that, a cha was that a challenge, though, in, in all of your research? I mean, when you say that you had an interest in statistics, I mean, you would have seen those preliminary results from your pilot studies to know that, look, the, the numbers needed to treat here in order to get oh, a statistical um, power. Absolutely. We just wanted to just to determine whether, well, we did a number of things in that first study. We, we determined uh, whether or not these cows had ovulation to the first generation or not. We followed follicle growth. To know what happens with follicle growth, that's that's what I did in the development of, of OBSYNC. We uh, we had it figured out, interestingly enough, from the very beginning, because uh, we had it figured out as as being seven days between the first generation uh, and prostaglandin F2 alpha, and two days at that time mm -hmm. uh, to the GnRH, and then 24 hours later AI. That was that was before we did the timing of AI yeah. work. And then following those studies, uh, more studies were done with, of course, the timing of the prostaglandin injection. And um, but but that that whole study, uh, I characterized. It, 
um, all the follicle development, all the CL development in there, and exactly how it happens. Uh, we, we actually we did a, we did several studies like that, and uh, we did it. We did another study where we had uh, with and without the first GnRH, so saline or GnRH. We had and with or without um, the final GnRH, basically. Uh, so we had prostaglandin in there all the time. It was it was interesting. It always came out a lot. You know, they they synchronized much better if you had yep. <laughs> if you started out with the GnRH, and it turns out with the seven days we figured out. You know, seven days we've got to have if if we get an ovulation, we've got to have seven days there in order to uh, for this for the cell to mature enough so that we can regress it with prostaglandin two alpha and. And that was our thinking. It was, and, it, and then it turns out that it works well on a calendar that way too. Um, the other thing that happens that we figured out during all the work that I figured out during all the work was that follicles will uh, grow up, and if and if you wait too long to get the prostaglandin, they're going to die before you get the prostaglandin, and, and a new wave would come on, and that'll uh, that'll mess things up. I mean, you you won't get a, a synchronization that way. You won't get an ovulation most likely. And so you don't get a pregnancy. So those are lots of things like that that we learned doing these studies. It wasn't as simple as just putting this together and seeing how many cows we got. And it was actually developing all the the information dealing with follicle development, CL development on a daily basis. Yeah. I had my arm and cows on a daily basis for about three years doing this work. But it was fun because you really, uh, I was able to really learn a lot. Uh, I was about follicle development in cows. Not lots of people, I think, have done that, you know, where they spent that much time working through daily daily ultrasounds, working through what happens on a daily basis with, with follicle development. Back then, uh, both Ginther's lab and uh, Dr. Wilbank's lab were doing a lot of that. It's fascinating looking back to think that that one trial, that epiphany that Myla walks in with about, hey, this is how we could synchronize cows over a 10-day period, has led to so many iterations and so many other studies. That's So from there, from OvSync in 95, then you coming here in 96. So what, what, other, what then were some of the progressions? What, were the, what was the next sort of step for you from, from there? Well, when I came here in, in 96, I mean, we were still... Uh, publishing papers from my dissertation. I think I had five papers that were published from my dissertation. So I was working on those. I had some ideas on some different things to do and to be quite honest my position here uh, had no research appointment when I started here. It was all teaching and extension basically. Over the next five, six years I still was able to get some research. We have a we have a really good group here, and we had a really good group of people at that time also, very supportive of each other. Dr. George Smith and I decided there was an opportunity in 2001, I think it was. There it was a it was a new program USDA had a funding program, um, animal uh, agriculture research and. Uh, as an extension, uh, actually, Dr. Fricky and I put together uh, an extension group of uh, a regional extension group, and at the time, it included both dairy and, and beef guys. And the, the uh, we put together one year a big a big grant. Uh, it included uh, Dr. Smith and some other people here, and so it was a number of different universities. Uh, we didn't get it funded. The next year, the group decided that they should focus their efforts a little bit more on just either beef or dairy. So we took the dairy one 
uh, Dr. Smith and I from Michigan State, Milo and Paul from Wisconsin. At any rate, it was a, almost a $2 million grant proposal that we sent and we got it funded. That changed things for me quite a bit. It allowed me to change my position a little bit to include research. I could show them that I had done, you know, a, this is a big deal when you bring money into the university, right, especially that much money. That took us a long way uh, down the road different things uh, resulting in uh, pre-synchronization strategies and those types of things as we went along. Uh, there were a number of people already doing some work. Uh, Fred Moriera, who's working with Dr. Thatcher in Florida, had had done some work uh, already with uh, using Prostlan F2 Alpha, uh, two injections 14 days apart in a pre-synchronization program. Mm -hmm. with getting, they were getting very good results with that. and So they kind of got that ball rolling a little bit. Was the industry already using pre-synchronization programs or breeding to heat but stimulating with PG and or was the focus on, well, let's get into the physiology of... Even though we had lots of data with Opsync, especially how it worked uh, from a physiological standpoint, uh, we eventually figured out that Opsync works the best if you start Opsync on day six or seven of the estrus cycle. I don't know exactly when that occurred, to be quite honest. We had done some work here. Um, uh, Nora Bello was a student of mine, and we published a little bit of work that we developed what we call G6G, so we used a prostaglandin two days later, uh, a GNRH, and then six days later uh, started Opsync. And we knew that at that time that Opsync had a much better chance of, of being successful if you could control two different things. One is, is you control the percentage of cows that ovulate to the first generation of Opsync. Well, we already knew that from data from Ginther and a number of people that day six or day seven would be an ideal time to give GNRH because the likelihood of causing ovulation is really great at that point. Somewhere around uh, 90, 93 or four or five or something like that. Uh, other people haven't got that high a percent, but just today we were looking at some data from my t uh, student, Tyna. We were at 96%, I think, on the cows that actually we knew that had, that were on day seven. We were somewhere around 95, 96. So just for our, our listeners is just to run through that again, pre-syncing the cows with two shots of prostaglandin, 14 days apart, and then obviously the variation. Well, so that was what was happening early on, days apart. It turns out that when you pre-sync 14 days apart with the prostaglandins, uh, it, that's fine between the prostaglandins, but mm -hmm. they also did 14 days, and they also followed up with some studies where they did different days of, uh, between the prostaglandin, uh, this would be Thatcher and Morier and, and that group uh, in Florida, different days to determine uh, the ideal time, you know, to get, and they could, you know, everyone can do the math. It turns yeah. out that cows come into, into heat off prostaglandin um, uh, three or four days later. And so you're looking at, if you know that it's day six or seven is your target, then you're looking at somewhere around 10 or 11, somewhere in there. They were doing some of that work, and then Paul Fricke and Milo got into that. Uh, I can remember telling Milo that we we were putting together G6G, and he said, well, you know, just adding another, why don't you just do just another off-sync in, in front of there? And I said, well, why don't you? And and so I think, I don't know if that was the phone call that got double <laughs> off-sync going or not, but I think he, he had probably already figured it out, to be quite honest. But, but I remember that phone call, and and so they started, you know, after we did G6G, they started doing double off-sync just to add, you know, another GNRH up front. It's just right. two off-syncs, right? So and that got the result that you wanted? G6G um, was pretty effective, although we went quite a while and not, we really didn't have good 
good conception rate data uh, for a while on that. And uh, Jose Santos from Florida collected some conception rate data, looked good with G6G. Since then, there's a number of studies out there. We we had a G7G early on that we did. Basically, it was another another study we did at Noah's Farm. It was it was pretty early on actually. That would have that would have been published in around 2000, 2001 maybe something like that. Uh, we didn't get great results compared to just Obstinc alone. It was a prostaglandin, uh, three days later GnRH, then seven days later Obstinc, basically. This, I want to say it was three or four or five points, something like that, but not enough numbers that, uh, for it to be interesting. We completely blow it off. You do these studies, and you know, recently we've done some work too that's kind of interesting how the outcomes have have been that we wouldn't have expected, you know, based on other uh, previous data. But you, you, you have to put the, the uh, all the data that's been collected you know, from a number of different people. It's great that a lot of people do this work. Because, uh, I can remember uh, Bill Thatcher telling us about OffSync, and he says, you know, we've done this, and we get the same results from you. That hardly ever happens, you know, to be able to repeat something. And so he was, that was fun to get kind of a feedback from him. And, and so, you know, you get a number of people doing the same work. You know, Fricky and Wilbank in Wisconsin, the guys in Florida, Stevenson, you know, and, and different people doing this kind of work. Eventually, you can kind of put together a story. You get enough data out there. Milo has trained lots of people, and, and those people are going out collecting tons of data. Uh, I mean, it's just incredible right, With when you think about the impact he's had, to be quite honest, with with himself and his students, just very impressive. The pre-synchrony thing got started back in that period. It was people started doing that. I mean, I think the pre-sync fourteen fourteen, so it would be a fourteen day period between the, uh, but we call it just pre-sync fourteen. Now it's fourteen days from the second PG to the off-sync. Yeah. Uh, works for a lot of people because it's simple to do. Uh, it's a Mondays, Whole on a Monday. Mondays and yep. Wednesdays you breed on Thursdays. The, the problem with that is, well there's a couple of problems with that. From a timed AI standpoint, if you're just going to do timed AI, which I don't know anyone at all that just only does timed AI with Precinct 14, nor should they. The problem with that is when you do 14 days between the second PG and Obsync, you're going to be somewhere on day 10 or 11 of the cycle when you give first mm-hmm. generation of Obsync, if they respond to that second PG, which um, a lot of them will. And that's a horrible time to give GnRH. And Dr. Santos did some of this work, Dr. Fricky, around 40% ovulation rate, something like that. So it, it really generation. drops from, from 10 days down horrible, to that six or seven. Because the first wave follicle turns over at that and dies then. So there's not like there's a nice follicle always there on day six or seven. I go, but at day ten or eleven, it's turning over, it's dying at that point, and a new wave is coming on. What would be the the message to you, the listeners here today? Well, the message is if, and still a lot of people like to cherry pick. Mm-hmm. If I was cherry picking cows off off of heats, mm-hmm. off of a pre-sync off sync, I would be using a pre-sync 14, 14 days between the two PGs and 14 days. Uh, because it doesn't really matter uh, if you're picking out all those cows, whether you're day 11 or day 14, uh, the, the, the cows that eventually get off sync are not going to be any different. And so uh, you might as well do something simple and keep it where compliance is really good, achievable. And so Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays. That's what I would do. I mean, um, if I was going to be cherry picking, but I wouldn't cherry pick. We've been talking about this now for, I don't know. A little while. <laughs> 10, at least 10, 12, 13, 14 yeah. years about the difference in pregnancy rates per AI in cows that are bred to a following estrus versus cows that uh, are time disseminated using 
what we now call a fertility program. And what is that difference? I mean, you've got enough between all of your peers around the country. Are pretty similar. So you're looking at about about a 50% increase in pregnancies per AI. If, for example, if you use, if you use a G6G, pre-sync 10 or 11 off-sync, 10 or 11 days between the or uh, double off-sync. And, and that's, uh, most of those data published would say you get about a 50% increase when they're directly comparing to uh, an estrus. But yeah, no question. But I mean, there's a number of studies out there and and it's about it's about 15 points, but, but when you go from 30 to 45%, that's a yeah. 50% increase. Inseminating every cow to yeah. the time AI, okay, on the on one of those three fertility programs, uh, versus inseminating following an estrus and then the control group. And even when you take out the cows that you've timed inseminated at, at the tail enders that, that don't get detected in estrus, you take those out, it's still about the same. I mean, it's incredible to be quite honest. And now that was when we were only using one prostaglandin injection. But now, with two prostate injections, it's it's a different story, even more. I mean, it's probably it's more than fifty percent. And and just again, just explain where you're using that extra prostaglandin. Okay, so uh, the extra prostaglandin now we're putting that in uh, twenty four hours after the first prostaglandin of the offsync program. Of the offsync part. Okay, yeah. so it, but we it, don't change anything else. It's just ad, added to. Right. So in other words, if if you're doing uh, so, if you're given prostaglandin in the morning, mm-hmm. on for example. On, uh, on Monday and on Wednesday evening you're giving GNRH you're still going to do that on Wednesday evening you're just going to give another injection of prostaglandin on Tuesday morning they still get GNRH Wednesday evening they still get inseminated on Thursday okay so a normal love sync program GPG has now become GPPG yeah of a, a pre-sync off sync or a G6G or a double off sync that second, that off-sync, the last off-sync program is, is getting that extra prostaglandin. Yeah. So explain how did that come about? Well, actually, uh, Milo Wilbank did the first study. Um, uh, his student, Denise Bruzving, uh, was a master's student, and she uh, published this study. Actually, it was in 2009, mm-hmm. where she did those. She did that. She did um, one versus two, 24 hours apart, and just compared. And it was... Um, about five or six points difference uh, when you compare uh, a second with a second PG in there. Different in, in, in pregnancies per AI. The luteolysis ratio, which means when you give prostaglandin, what you're trying to do is, is cause the CL to regress. We call that luteolysis. We want the progesterone to go down to zero, basically. And that would be uh, complete luteolysis. That would, you know, we back when we had really good progesterone assays, we could on, uh, we could really determine this. And that's a, that's a test for the concentration of con- progesterone. Yeah, the concentrations uh, in, in circulation in the cows of progesterone, which is what the CL uh, is producing. Mm-hmm. So you regress the CL. It goes from producing, for example, four, five, six nanograms per mil of progesterone in circulation to any fact down close to almost trace and why the the extra shot of pg so animals weren't responding anymore to the single well we'd all been collecting i think there's a number of data sets out there that were showing that we were only getting so good luteolysis rates that's clearly limiting if you don't have luteolysis you're not going to get a pregnancy so as time went along a number of people were doing things to figure out how to to improve the program, mm-hmm. and that's probably one of the biggest improvements that have been made. 
that started in, in Wisconsin and as other people, including us, have done other studies. So anyway, that, that's, that's one of the bigger things that, that's, that's happened since then besides coming up with what we would call the fertility programs that do a really good job of getting cows pregnant. But if you go back to the cherry picking thing, you know, if, if I had my choice, I'd be using one of those fertility programs and being time inseminating everything. Uh, it's pretty clear, even now, that when you inseminate a cow, bred, and when you breed a cow uh, following an estrus, even with accelerometers, conception rates are only so good. First lactation cows are pretty good, actually, so you can be in the 40% range with first lactation animals. But once, once you get into the older cows, you're really reducing uh, the chances of getting cow pregnant by doing that. So these programs allow people to, in most cases, minimally 45% uh, of their cows pregnant up to 55, 60% of their cows pregnant, first AI with, with these programs, which is phenomenal to be quite honest. It's just phenomenal. You look at herds around, certain herds that have figured out, you know, they're very consistent, very good with compliance. They maintain really, really high fertility with these different programs, these herds around. It's, it's really nice to see. So, you know, we went from developing a program where you can only where you time inseminate cows and you control when they are inseminated, that really had a big impact on days open. Mm -hmm. That's what it was. Uh, not, on, not on conception rates, but days open. Big enough to where, you know, it changed where people started using this. And so it turned out that three injections wasn't a big deal after all. You know, uh, now people are using, uh, they understand. I mean, producers and veterinarians alike understand uh, the value of pregnancy. There's no question about that. You know, spending another dollar, few cents, or whatever it is uh, for prostaglandin. So spending that much more uh, to, to ensure that you're gonna get another four or five points or whatever it is, it's kind of a no-brainer, to be quite honest. So I think uh, even with, with producers with accelerometers, I think there's some pretty cool things you can do with a timed AI program, especially making sure all cows get inseminated. And the idea when you buy accelerometers, you're gonna just toss all the hormones out the window and just say, hey, we're done with it. A lot of people have done that and have been pretty successful, but but you can be more successful if they would set all their cows up with fertility program up front, then use their accelerometers to determine cows that, that have come back in peak and, uh, and re-inseminate those as quickly as possible. That's uh, that, that would be the gold standard sync program now if you if you had the ability to do both. Not a, uh, a, a good time right now for the dairy industry or dairy producers to be going out spending a lot of money on accelerometers if you're successful with the uh, fertility programs already. But at some point, it might be something to invest in once the economy, dairy economy comes back. Thanks for listening in to part two of our interview with Professor Richard Persley. Tune in to part three, where we explore what new research is underway. Be sure to subscribe to our blog at bluecowredcow.com so that you can be updated on all things cattle reproduction. From all of us here at the team at Parnell, have a great day and happy milking.